Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 1. We are reading verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. If you have a Bible available, you may turn back to Psalm 132 continuing to follow our series through the Psalms of Ascent. And as we come to that psalm this morning, let's ask God for help. Father, we come to your word this morning and we recognize that it's only in your light that we see light, that we only have understanding as you give it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would illumine our minds, that you will lead us into all truth as we hear you this morning. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I've been told that the local idol shrines are, have reopened for the season in Gainesville and Jacksonville and other cities all around the nation, and so my instructions are to be short. Um, the Jaguars have not answered my pleas to move games to 4 o'clock yet, um, but it is a communion Sunday, and uh, so we'll be moving with haste, not for the sake of the Jaguars, uh, but uh, for the sake of the Ramada. <laughs> we are uh, at our second to last sermon through the Songs of Ascent in which we have traced Israel's pilgrimage, these hymns that they would use three times a year in order to travel to Jerusalem uh, for worship. They are instructive to us because they show us the core beliefs of the people of God through the ages, and we read them, of course, through the lens of Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to Psalm 132, a psalm particularly important because it speaks of the coming Redeemer, Jesus. And so we hear this psalm through the eyes of faith, seeing it fulfilled and yet awaiting something that the psalm speaks of as well. Now in his short story, The Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway tells the story of two young Spanish waiters. They were filled with illusions of grandeur in which they would have the glory of the center stage of the Spanish bullfighting rink. And they dreamed of the glory that they would share as they defeated bull after bull. And so these young men, their names were Paco and Enrique, they decided to simulate a bullfight one night after work. And so they went into the back kitchen. They took two knives and lashed them to a chair they then repurposed a tablecloth, a red one, that would provide the cape, and one began to push the chair, charging the other. There were several passes in which they both exercised their excellence and skill at bullfighting that was still growing. But then suddenly, Enrique pushed the bull into Paco's femoral artery, and Paco bleeds out in Hemingway's story there on the floor of the back kitchen. Hemingway then famously says this. 
he died, as the Spanish phrase had it, full of illusions. He was filled with illusions of glory, that the glory he was going to have as a perhaps famous Spanish bullfighter. And it's important for us as we hear that story to recognize that this is the critique that many thoughtful non-Christians share of those who have a sincere Christian faith. That we too are filled with illusions, that we're fueled by them. It's not in the glory of bullfighting that we're filled with illusions, but that we are filled with illusions of a glory that is to come. That we have a Redeemer, Jesus, he sits at God's right hand, and that one day he's going to return and restore and renew all things. We have a hope for the creation of a new heavens and earth in which the sad things of this present order are undone and God makes everything right. And many would simply say it's an illusion. They would say, sounds great, but where is it? And it's that critique that's very important for us to hear. Because we live in a certain tension. We live in a gap. And that gap is defined by two events. That is the promise of God and the events where that promise is established in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the final consummation or fulfillment. And our lives and our faith ask us and requires us to live in the gap between these two events. And there are tensions there. People will note that perhaps we are full of illusions. They will criticize our faith. And we've seen throughout these psalms of ascent that there is lots of trouble and there are many trials that go on for the people of God. We've seen enemies and adversaries. There's sin and wrongdoing, not simply on the outside, but also on the inside. There are hypocrites and traitors who are opposed to the grace of God. There is lots of trouble. And this drama is unfolding and it requires that we live in that gap of time between these two events, between God's promise and God's final fulfillment of it. And the question for us this morning is, how do you and how do I make it through that? How do we live in the tension that is owned in this gap, that is real, that belongs to the gap? How do we live between promise and final fulfillment? And there's two things that Psalm 132 walks us into. The first is that we recite the history of God's pledge and God's promise, particularly focusing upon its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, we can sum up the whole psalm this way, that it is a recitation of a history. And when we read Psalm 132... You'll find that it's very little preached on, but it's often cited as one of the most important psalms for understanding Old Testament theology, because it is laden with history. And many people's eyes just simply roll back in their heads when they read all of the history and the strange names and events that they don't quite understand. And so we have to unpack this understanding why the history was being recited. But the history here begins to be recited in the first ten verses. And it's the story of David and how David endured hardship in order to establish a resting place for the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the Ark was stolen by the Philistines and then they gave it back because they wanted nothing to do with it. And then for two decades, the Ark was kept outside of Jerusalem. 
And so David then went and fetched it. He brings it back to Jerusalem to great fanfare, and he establishes a place for it. He was not the one who was going to build the final temple, but the ark symbolized the rule and the reign of God with his people and his presence among them. This is what the first part of the psalm in the ten verses are about, is establishing that history. But then there's a turn in the second part of the psalm, where it's not simply talking about the historical events of David, but the promise of God, the oath that God then swears to his people. David has taken an oath to establish a home, and then God takes his own oath. You follow with me in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And this is the first promise of the Davidic covenant, that a son of David would sit on the throne. One of the sons that was descended from David's flesh would sit on the throne forever. This is the first promise of the Davidic covenant. The second promise you can find in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. The second promise is that God was going to dwell with his people and be among them. These are the two major promises of the Davidic covenant. And what the people of God are doing as they sang Psalm 132 is reciting this history. This history of God's plan and God's purposes in making promises to David. And they are reminding themselves. They are reminding and encouraging and exhorting one another with this great history. And this history was all drawing to a certain goal. A certain telos. And that end or that goal that this was pointing to was Jesus. That he is the son of David. But the New Testament also makes a strange claim that no one was quite expecting. Because you remember, there were two promises. And we read in Romans 1 that Jesus is the son of David, who has come and taken the throne. But yet also we read in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the dwelling of God with men. And so these two promises of the Davidic covenant become smashed together and they merge in Jesus. And he's the fulfillment of everything that was hoped for. And yet, even though this oath has been fulfilled, it is a partial fulfillment because we're still waiting on something to come. And this is what our Lord Jesus has promised. And so just like the Israelite pilgrims who lived in a gap between promise and fulfillment, we also live in a gap. We have the first installment of Jesus, but we're waiting for the final consummation of all things when he comes to put all enemies underneath his feet, including the final enemy of death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll trample it down. And so we live in this tension, and what that tension requires is that we dig down deep and we pull hard on the history of God's pledge and of God's promise. And the way this happens in Psalm 132 is not simply in our individualized private meditations, but rather remember that these were songs. These were songs shared by the people of God as they traveled together, and then as they arrived in Jerusalem, they were singing together of these things. And friends, this is one of the great purposes of hymns in the Christian church, of singing. This is why I goad you about participating, because we participate 
in order to recite these great events of what God has done. This great history and all the benefits that we receive from it. And when we take up hymns and songs that are informed by the scriptures that God has given to us, we are encouraging and exhorting one another, pushing one another to believe. We're expressing our belief. We're giving testimony to it. And so, of course, that is to be wholehearted, joyous, and committed. Perhaps the worst critique a church could receive is after someone attending a worship service and for that person to say, I'm not sure they believed it. Because that's the whole thing. We gather to recite the history, to encourage and to stimulate and to bolster our beliefs. And so we recite that history centering upon Jesus Christ. But there's a second movement that takes place in the psalm. Because it's not only that we're to recite it, but we're also to recall this history of God's pledge and promise. Now you'll note this at two places in the psalm. Look in the first verse. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. And then in verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, we've moved here because we're not reciting. We're recalling something, and it's being recalled for who? It's being recalled for God. And that's not because God has somehow forgotten the promise that he's made. But rather, this recall of the promise that God has made, this action has taken place. It is an act of faith. That the promise and the pledge that God gave to David, the people, the church, takes up that promise and takes it to God. We place it before him. And they're crying out to God, for the sake of your servant David, because of this great promise that you've made to him, do not turn away your face from him. Do not abandon him. Do not leave him. And what's critical for us to hear is to see how the logic is working. That the promise has been made. And so then in the tension and the gap as we're waiting for the fulfillment. And there's all kinds of different things taking place. That perhaps even look like threaten the promise. That in faith we go to God holding fast to the promises that he's made that he's going to fulfill them. And friends that is the work of faith and prayer. John Calvin in book 3 of the Institutes argues that same way. Listen carefully to what he says here. Often known as a high-power intellectual theologian, he was also very practical and oriented to the heart. And so he speaks of the life of prayer in this way. He says, For there is a communion of men with God, by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience where necessity so demands that what they believed was not in vain, although he had promised it in word alone. And we've heard the promise in word. And yet we go to God, and in his presence, we bring that word and we hold fast to it in the context of faith and prayer, is what Calvin is arguing. And this is why we recite. We recite to know the history in order to recall it in front of God in order to bring it to him, to exercise our faith, to say, God, make good on every promise that you made to the son of David. And those promises that he makes to the son of David, 
and through the son of David, Jesus, to you are enormous. They are grand. They are lavish. They're never to be limited. We ought never to let anyone sell us short of everything that God is holding out for us in Jesus. And that's what we hold on to in the context of faith and prayer in the middle of all the tensions in which we live. There are two challenges, though, that we encounter in this. As we bring our recall to God, as we recite our history, as we hold fast to it. And the first is this, is that it is tempting for some of us in the midst of that recitation is that our theology just simply turns into data. That is, we get preoccupied with facts, we get preoccupied with knowledge, and the facts and knowledge become somewhat like artifacts in a museum. We cherish them, we hold fast to them, but they're just kept safe. They're not put to work. Now, as a resident of Washington, D.C., for six years of my life, one of the great privileges that we have is because all American taxpayers support the Smithsonian's. And so for six years, I freeloaded off of you. It was wonderful. The Smithsonian's are awesome in the history they're able to tell. But it was in visiting those Smithsonian's with some frequency that I began to understand what was happening. Because it's very possible, you know, when I invite my children, say, hey, we're going to go to the, um, the new United States History Smithsonian because it's just been reopened. And they would say, well, Dad, we've seen it before. Why would we want to go look at the same old dusty uniforms? Why would we want to see the same guns, the same cannons, read the same thing about the same presidents? And they were looking at a museum as just artifacts. But the thing is, is that the Smithsonian had just been redone. And it was redone not just renovate the place and put down new carpet, but rather they were renovating the story that was being told through the artifacts because that's what a good museum does. It doesn't simply put things on display, but it's delivering you to a place. It's giving you a sense of what it means to be an American, a citizen of the United States. That's what the museum is designed to do. It is to be put to work by you. And friends, this is the point of theology, that it's never to simply be data. It's not something you just collect and hold on to as an artifact. It's something that you put to work. That the God who acted then and there is the God who rules over you here and now. And that he speaks these same promises to you today. And that it is a sure oath that he will not forsake and he will not forget. And so we don't want our theology to ever simply become a system that we hold on to tightly. And we just treat like a set of data. Because that theology, the purpose of it is that we know how to relate to God. That we need all of the theology because it informs us and instructs us about who this God is and what he's like and how he works. And then in faith, in the context of prayer, we're to put that to work. And so never let yourself become like that where your theology simply turns into a data set. Now the other danger that takes place is that it's also tempting for our theology to ignore the data, and to strike out on its own. And this is tempting for some because the Bible is just simply a big and confusing book. 
And there's a lot of things said in it. There's a lot of different perspectives on it. And so some people are just tempted to give up on the whole enterprise of theology. And so what they begin to do is relate to God basically on their own rules. But when we do this, the great danger is that we craft a God in our own image. A God that we like, that's comfortable for us, that placates us, and answers all of our desires. And this is the awful disaster of doing theology freed from the covenants and the promises and the pledges of God. That is when we strike out in theology free from the scriptures. And we can't do that. We have no permission to. God gives us no permission to redesign him, to reimagine him the way that we would like him to be. But rather we're to dig down into that history, into those historical promises and pledges that God makes all that he's done for us in Jesus. We're to look back into that history, to hold fast to it, not as a set of data, but so that that information, all that he has given to us, can be put to work. And so we recite the creeds. We recite the history of the covenant. And as we do so, we turn to call on God. We call on God to make good on all these words that he has spoken. And you'll note where the psalm ends In verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And this is the direction of all of this great history is one final victory where death is trampled down, where all the enemies of God's grace and of God's purposes for creation are finally and ultimately defeated. To live in the gap, in the tension that exists between promise and fulfillment, we have to have a robust faith. Otherwise, that faith will be challenged, and it will just simply drift, and it will become dull. But a robust faith requires this knowledge of history, this knowledge of who God is and what he has done through that history. And then it requires the application of that knowledge that it's put to work in a lively faith that calls on God and looks to him and is sustained by him, that believes these promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. But yet there is this future consummation as well. That's the work of theology. And that's what the task of the Christian is in the middle of all the tension in which we're embroiled. And so let's ask God to help us with all of that tension. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for all of your great works, the great works that reveal you and your purposes and your plans and in your character. And we ask, God, that you would keep us from the error of our theology simply being a set of data, facts of history that we know, artifacts that we hold on to. But would all of that knowledge of this great history that you've given to us in the Bible Would that be put to work in our lives as we learn to call upon you, as we learn to pray, as we learn to exercise faith, trusting you in the middle of all the tensions in which we find ourselves? Lord, we ask for your help that you sustain us, that you strengthen us for that task. And this morning, we're also mindful of those in your world who suffer. There's been great disaster this week in the Bahamas We see pictures and images, and they're horrific. 
And we hold fast to your promise that your mercy is over all that you have made. And even in life's greatest distresses, it's you alone who can bring forth good. And so we entrust that to you. We ask, God, that you would preserve life, that you would provide food and water, that you would bring comfort to many who grieve, that you would restore and renew in your mercy what looks like utter devastation. We ask, God, that you would open our own hearts to know how to help to be generous and gracious and liberal and kind as you are with us. And Father, we're also mindful of your great mission to the nations. It is through the Son of David that you will extend your reign from shore to shore, that every tribe and tongue will come and offer him praise and thanks. And so we're grateful for the work of Josh and Anna Dickinson in Bundabugio, Uganda. We're blessed to have them over these months of sabbatical, and we ask God that you give them good rest here, that you provide, continue to provide for their needs, and that you strengthen them for their return to Bundabugio, where they serve the tribes of the peoples of Uganda. Bless their work to preach and teach the gospel through the works of clean water projects. Will you bring about conversions and renewal for the church there? Strengthen the pastors, bring forth light in the pulpits, and would the peoples of East Africa praise you, O oh God? We also remember our ministry partner, C. Mark Ranch, and we're grateful for their obedience to your command to care for the orphans and the work they do to educate and to strengthen, to counsel and to love those who are on the edges and margins of society. We ask that you bless their work, provide all of their needs, answer their financial request, continue to give them loving house parents. Will these kids be raised up in loving homes to know you, to love you, and serve you all of their days? Will their lives be a testimony to your grace? Father, we remember those in our congregation who are deployed. We pray for Chris Manchigaya. We ask God that you would uphold Chris in his long deployment away from his home, away from Molly and the kids. Sustain him in his faith, encourage him, give him Christian fellowship. And Lord, we ask that you provide for Molly and the children also. Be a comfort to them. And Lord, we also pray for Lenny Curry and our city council, the leaders of our city. We ask that you would endow them with wisdom they would know how to lead the city of Jacksonville to be a place of righteousness and peace. Give them the wisdom they need for the awesome tasks and the complications they deal with. Help them. And Lord, we close by remembering our children. We're thankful for the stewardship that you've entrusted to our church, our little ones, and our youth. And we ask God that they would grow strong, that they would be oaks of righteousness planted in the house and the courts of God, that they would be nurtured by you, that they would know Jesus and what it is to believe in and to entrust themselves to him. The great son of David who rules over all things, may they belong to him and would they call on him in faith and in prayer. Grant them to serve you all the days of their lives with joy and thanksgiving in your house. These are our prayers. We ask them in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.